Welcome to the Healthy Returns Podcast, where I sit down with founders, investors, and executives innovating in health tech, fitness and wellness, and human performance. My guest today is Dr. Ami Bhatt, Chief Innovation Officer of the American College of Cardiology. Since launching her first virtual care program in 2013, Dr. Bot has become a world leader in digital health innovation, paving the way for better tech-enabled cardiovascular care delivery. Dr. Bot's previous roles include serving as director for both outpatient and telecardiology and the adult congenital heart disease program at Massachusetts General Hospital. In today's episode, we discuss generative AI and machine learning in cardiology, the future of consumer wearables in clinical care, and how we should start thinking about the last mile of healthcare delivery as the first. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy today's episode. Hi, Dr. Bot. Thanks so much for joining Healthy Returns. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is going to be a really fun conversation. Um, I guess I'll, I'll start with this. You're currently the Chief Innovation Officer for um, the American College of Cardiology. So wh- what does that even mean? It's a it's a great question. This is the kind of a um, friends episode. Like, what does Chandler do? People ask me this a lot nowadays. Um, so, so you know, the great thing is innovation is not limited to just people who carry the title that I do. Right? There's innovation happening everywhere. Um, specifically for me, the way I came to this was first through telemedicine and digital health. Um, I was seeing patients who lived pretty far away from Boston. And there were times where it didn't seem right to have them come all the way down to the city to see me when we were just having the conversation. And so it started from just, can I provide the kind of care my patients need in the communities where they live? And can we really be partners in their care? Uh, And so that's how I came to innovation. And I'd like to start with that story because innovation isn't, let's go find something new and different always. Oftentimes it's, hey, there's something going on that we could do better how could we do that better? And so that's kind of how I think about my role. And specifically in cardiology right now, it's how can we get better access to cardiovascular care? Um, We have a lot more people with disease. We have a lot fewer people to care for them. And so most of the work we do surrounds that concept of getting better access to care. Sure. Yeah. And and off air, you know, we were just talking before this, um, how you were saying when you were first getting into the field of medicine and first starting uh, to practice cardiology, that patients were asking you to FaceTime, for example, and you were saying that, you know, what, like I, you know, that's not allowed. Like we don't do that. How much has the whole idea of digital health changed? Um, and now what made you want to go beyond that original, you know, caring for patients to have an impact on the future of care delivery? Bill, thank you for asking. Um, when I first started seeing patients, and they were, you know, roughly my age, I, I saw adults with congenital heart disease. So there are people who used to actually not necessarily make it into adulthood 30, 40 years ago, right? And then we got so much better with surgery and with care that these patients were making. And the adult cardiologist would say, "I." don't really know what to do with this disease. It's not what I study, right? It's not coronary artery disease in a 70-year-old. And the pediatric cardiologist increasingly would say, no, but wait, you're 30 and you want to get pregnant. How does that fit into a pediatric practice? Mm -hmm. So it was actually an area that needed more practitioners. And so the field really developed, and I was lucky to be there as the field developed, and we didn't have boards um, and we didn't have other, you know, certifications, and now we do. Mm-hmm. And so, so as that field grew, we grew with it. But also, the age of my patients was my age, and so they wanted to do with me what they did in the rest of their life, which meant FaceTiming or 
talking about things at a distance or asking why can't that test be done here in Northern Maine, mm -hmm. right? Don't we have a MRI here that can do this? And so that really pushed me to start looking for how do I provide care in the communities where they live? Mm -hmm. Can I do telemedicine? By the way, the first telemedicine platforms were hysterically awful. People would be so frustrated if we had those today. Mm -hmm. They were so clunky. You know, we would just drop off from each other and have to come back on maybe seven times during a 20 minute visit. But the patients wanted that. Mm -hmm. My patients were really my friends. And they said, it's okay if we drop off seven times. You're not making me leave work find childcare, drive five hours, pay for parking in Boston. And so really that's kind of what drove me to start to figure all of this out. And then COVID happened. And when COVID happened, um, and I don't know if, if your audience will catch it, but I'm going to use the reference. Um, in the movie Dirty Dancing, there's a reference, nobody puts baby in the corner. Um, I, I like to call it my nobody puts baby in the corner moment because I had been doing telemedicine for 10 years from 20, um, maybe a little less, for seven years from 2013 to 2020. And nobody really wanted to do telemedicine. And then COVID happened and everybody said, hey, does anybody know how to do telemedicine? I happen to be head of the outpatient cardiology group at MGH. We need to see 60,000 visits a year. And we had no way to get patients into the clinic. And so now people were listening. Um, and it was great to see how when you really need the innovation, everybody's on board. Mm -hmm. They'll figure it out, right? Didn't matter what age, didn't matter where they were calling in from, everybody figured it out together. And once I saw that happen, I realized there is so much more of a need to improve access to good health care throughout our country in the U.S., globally. This morning, I just got off a meeting with a group of global cardiology leaders who are really looking at how can we start using AI to screen patients in the community, in the villages, to find the sicker patients sooner so we can both save lives and save money to the system from them coming in in extremis, whereas, you know, we could have seen them sooner. Sure. And so this is something that's not just limited to my job at the ACC or to you and I talking about academically. This is actually something that's going to make a difference in people's lives. And, and so therefore, the idea to, to jump from academic cardiology practice to starting to think about global innovation and how do we set up the infrastructure and the systems to really get care to people where they do, where they deserve to get it, which is in their community. Definitely. And you spoke kind of about this evolution, right, from just telemedicine to now the ever-expanding world of digital health. So two questions here. So one, what has that evolution looked like? Because you know, before when people thought digital health, they thought telemedicine, that was it. Stick a, you know, as we just mentioned, uh, stick a doctor in front of a Zoom or, a, you know, a FaceTime camera and you know, do televisits. But now it's so much more. So what, and then what specifically has made that evolution, um, you know, so suited for cardiology care delivery? Yeah. Um, when we think about why digital health is necessary and why it works, the first thing is really chronic management in the community. So, you know, over age 60, most people have not just one or two, but actually three chronic diseases. And those people need management continually. And our ability to now do remote monitoring, whether that's with medical grade devices or whether it's with wearables, really enables patients to participate in their care by being there in the community and seeing their own numbers and being able to share that with clinicians, but also be able to respond to it. So that's chronic management. Let's think another way about chronic management just for a second, which is 
you, myself, and let's take, you know, a grandparent. The three of us have different blood pressures at baseline. Now, yes, we give guidelines. This is the appropriate blood pressure everybody should be at. But let's be honest, the three of us should not have the same blood pressure. But I can do a run in and in two to three weeks, I can know what your range is. And then I can know when you're out of range. And now I can identify that and I can get to you sooner or you can see it coming and align it with symptoms and recognize that it's time to now make a maneuver, whether it's a medical maneuver, whether it's a nutritional maneuver, what are we going to do? And so chronic management is the first place after this idea of just telemedicine, which is a doctor being able to see a patient over a screen, where people realized we can do population health now because we have remote monitoring. So it was remote monitoring that allowed us to be able to say, this is what digital health is now. And I will say the word digital health as separate from health is going away. Mm-hmm. It's just health. Yeah. There's not a different field. It's just health. And the right thing is not to measure your blood pressure twice a year when you see a doctor. The right thing is to measure it on a relatively regular basis at home, know when it's changing, and address it right away using a holistic approach. And so I think that's kind of that first evolution. Why cardiology? Because we were remote monitoring things long before anyone else. Mm -hmm. We need to know your heart rate. Some people had pacemakers. And so I I think that's why for cardiologists, um, we feel that this is really our field. Because we started there with remote monitoring, we'd already started to figure out mechanisms for doing this. The important part next is after you look at chronic management, if you think of a pyramid, the base of that pyramid is chronic management. The middle is rising risk. Identify the rising risk, address it right away so people can stay in their community, stay at home, be cared for by local caregivers. And then if the tuppy top of the pyramid is reached, which is people who are in extremis who have trouble, who need a procedure, Now, instead of showing up at a doctor's office with the wrong test, without the right information, at the wrong doctor, because we saw it coming, you go to the right person at the right time with the right testing. Sure. Right? And so that's that's what health is now, and that's what health can be by the use of some of these digital tools. And I put remote monitoring smack in the the middle of that. And I know that we're going to talk about ChatGPT and AI and machine learning. We'll talk about the other things, too. But if you just think about digital health, I think remote monitoring is the baseline for that. Sure. Yeah, I love the idea that you just brought up, which that patients may be best served outside the walls of a hospital mm-hmm. um, and in their homes. I think that's a you know really large strength of digital health and that it enables that type of care. Mm-hmm. Um, just before this, I was looking at a company called Dispatch Health, which mm-hmm. um, you know you you may be familiar with them, but you know back in 2013 um, they basically created this company that allows them to dispatch emergency team care teams, um, medical teams to, to homes. And they blew up during COVID for, for obvious reasons. And, you know, now they have a partnership with my university. So patients um, who go through the Emory health system have the option to receive in-home care from dispatch health. And then really interestingly, just yesterday, funny enough, they just announced a partnership with Instacart. So they're moving beyond, just you know basic medicine and now they're able to prescribe patients food just as easily as they are able to prescribe pills and yes i mean the impacts on food insecurity you know and healthcare costs and you know that being a social determinant of health in itself is just amazing so i I say all that to just point out how the evolution of at-home care is really been driving you know really been driven by by digital health and everything that you're talking about 
you know, um, it's a, it's a smaller world than we even think. So dispatch health, when they were a, um, tiny little company and an idea in Denver, Colorado was mm -hmm. one of our first partners and our first investments okay. at the wow. American college of cardiology. Okay. So before COVID we met them and thought, gee, this is a great way to take care of cardiovascular patients. Many of whom are elderly, may be frail, may have mobility issues and oftentimes have heart failure. So volume overload in their body that needs to be addressed quickly before they end up in an ER. And especially when people are discharged home, as you mentioned from Emory right now, that's a very vulnerable time. And to be able to go back to the way healthcare used to be done and visit the patient in their home and understand what their surroundings are and, and help them get the right care at the right time. Um, Dispatch Health had all those ideas uh, long before others. Um, as they've evolved, it's been interesting to watch them and other companies that recognize a few things. Um, one is, yes, emergent care can be delivered in the communities where people live. Number two, there can always be a strong connection between primary care or cardiology and the hospital and community caregivers. People carry assumptions like, well, if they do it, we won't know they're doing it. No, actually, we can communicate. And it's important to communicate so everybody knows what everybody else is doing. Um, the third thing is interesting. So um, we, uh, we have a program at the American College of Cardiology called Caring Hearts. And that program was stood up um, in collaboration with um, FoodSmart, which is a uh, group that actually gives prescriptions for food. Okay. So it's kind of food as medicine. Mm -hmm. um, the Tufts group here and Dariush Mazafarian, who's a good friend of mine, uh, runs a food as medicine summit. They actually went to the White House where there was a food as medicine discussion there earlier this year. And so people are really recognized the, recognizing the importance of prescribing healthy foods and helping people understand that. But Instacart um, has come in and helped us a couple of times in areas where there's been significant food insecurity. Um, there was a grocery issue in Buffalo that had happened um, in, in the past couple of years. And uh, with the combination of our ability to get into people's homes and the ability to deliver the right kind of healthy food, uh, you know, there are large communities that were able to actually continue to, to be healthy, to not be insecure for food during really difficult times. And so I think it's important to recognize that that holistic approach is much more feasible outside of the hospital yeah. than in it, right? We're becoming better caregivers by moving into the community. I love that, you know, you ended on that last sentence because um, at university, I, I studied human health and it's all about taking a very holistic approach to understanding health and the experience of being health or sick. Um, with a large focus on preventive medicine and preventive care. Mm -hmm. And you're absolutely right. You know, outside the walls of the hospital, that's when you can look at health from a holistic perspective with social determinants of health, with, mm -hmm. you know, applications of consumer wearables, for example, that sort of thing. And I think one thing to, you know, really, you know, hammer home is that being able to serve patients at home, that requires a sort of infrastructure and like technology, you know, capabilities and needs in itself. And that's why I love seeing a company like Dispatch Health and like Instacart um, kind of leveraging their expertise and, you know, their value to, to these communities. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, now, I'd love to take the jump to AI and chat GPT and machine learning and all of that. So I'll start with this. A few months back, you published a piece in Nature about this idea of collaborative intelligence. 
talk us through what that means and where you've seen the most impact being made. Yeah. So if you start with artificial intelligence, the word artifice in Middle English meant deceit. We're actually saying deceitful intelligence. And so then we wonder why people don't want to use AI, right? Because we've named it incorrectly. Um, And so we came upon the thought of collaborative intelligence uh, for the following reason. When we're using AI in healthcare, what we're really doing is we are responsible for the data that we're giving to the algorithm, right? And then we're responsible for looking at the outputs and determining whether those outputs are correct, right? And how they should be used in practice. And so we need to actually have clinicians understand that we need to be in the middle of this. We don't want algorithms that are created. We don't want AI that's given to us and said, here, use this when there weren't actually clinicians and patients in the middle of designing what that looks like, mm. whether that's for user experience or for actual outputs, right? For, so for safety or for experience. Um, our friends at the AMA call this augmented intelligence. Mm. I love that phrase too, because it reminds the clinician that, hey, this is giving you information that you couldn't have gotten otherwise. If we just start with thinking about when I first trained um, and I was pre-med, The amount of data that I had to learn was actually pretty much in books in the library. It was a lot, but it was in books in the library. You as a pre-med now, there is no way you can learn everything that's out there about medicine. It's just not possible. But what we can teach our next generation is how do you get the right information at the right time for your patient and then deliver it? Mm -hmm. And that's what we really need to move towards learning and doing. And I think that's where the part of generative AI, let's start with generative, we'll talk about machine learning in a minute, but that's where generative AI is so important for us to use collaborative intelligence in. You don't want the entire internet available when you're asking a medical question. You want to know the data that you gave that gen AI, that you trusted that it makes sense. And then you want to look at the output and understand that, hey, the connections that gen AI saw, are those exactly right? Because things like nuance, things like edge cases, Mm -hmm. right? And even in some cases, context are not perfect right now with AI. They may get better. If I ask my colleagues in AI, they say, don't worry, we're going to solve for that. And I say, well, maybe, but there's always going to be a new edge case and there's always going to be a human nuance. um, And there's always going to be a different context that we learn about that maybe the AI can't. And so I think those three things will maintain something for which we need humans to be able to be involved in that. And so although I like augmented intelligence, I like collaborative because it reminds us that we're responsible for the data going in interpretation of what comes out, and then fixing the AI to make it even better. The problem in healthcare right now is we're not used to iterating when we're practicing. Uh I see patients every 20 minutes. I am not used to saying, hey, this AI algorithm wasn't exactly right. What's my feedback loop? How am I going to tell? No, I'm just moving on to the next patient. The AI didn't work is my answer. And, And the answer is always AI never makes a mistake. AI sees a connection that you fed it and draws a conclusion. It, it doesn't have the capacity to make a mistake because it's not intelligent. It's just computing. The intelligence is ours, right? And so I think that's kind of how I see Gen AI coming into what we're doing, which is we're not just dependent on computing power. We're desperate for computing power to give us all the information we need about a patient to make the best decision. If you just rely on me and Googling for 20 minutes to make the best decision for a patient, that's not optimal healthcare. I wouldn't want that for my mom. Yeah. So, so I really do want Genia to work, but we have to be responsible. So that's kind of collaborative intelligence um, when you think about it in the context of Gen AI, if you will. Sure, sure. 
now going beyond that let's move to to machine learning um what you know what are the current use cases specifically in cardiology for that yeah the field of radiology has been here for so long that I feel a little bit bad for them. They're like, hello, over here, we have been doing this, right? Like, um, what do you think an automated read is? Uh, I think uh, machine learning has a great place, especially in imaging, where it's been really well established in radiology. And for, for cardiac care, it's a perfect place to start. Um, what I'll say is a few things. One is, yes, to help with identifying a disease. The right diagnosis is important. It goes back to being holistic. Some of the companies out there that do the best AI for imaging for cardiology not only help you diagnose things, but actually then have platforms that help you get the right people on the right Zoom to talk about the case, to mobilize an operating room, to get something to happen. So we want to make sure that we're creating end-to-end -end solutions now as we start to use AI and not just, I'm going to drop my AI here. I hear a lot of people going, we're going to be an, have an algorithm that's going to drop in. And the answer is, no, somebody needs to create an end-to-end -end solution. Where is the end-to-end -end solution? And so I think it's really important for us to recognize that that's, that's incredibly important for us to do. Sometimes yeah. you will have the perfect algorithm and there'll be an end-to-end -end solution and you know that they have a pain point that they haven't solved for. And as a young entrepreneur with a great algorithm, you can go in and be like, I have your pain point, mm -hmm. right? So that's a great way to think about it. But you have to think about end-to-end -end solution. So let me give an example. If a patient comes into the emergency room with an aortic dissection, mm -hmm. and then the person at the CT scanner is sitting there to read it, right? The minute the scan is done, AI can know it's a dissection. Think of how much fast seconds matter. Yeah. Think of how much faster, not only does it know, but if we trust it, it actually starts to page and ping onto a shared platform where everybody opens their app, everybody can see the image, all the clinicians involved can confirm, yep, that image looks like exactly what the AI said. If they disagree, they disagree. Maybe it was a missed call. It's not often. That's a really obvious one. Mm -hmm. um, and then they can link to the nurse who's running the operating room where this is going to need to happen, the floor where the patient's being cared for to notify them that this is a real problem and they're coming, right? All of that can happen. And so that's a beautiful example of AI being a trigger for end-to-end -end patient care. Sure. And so I think the use of imaging is important. I'll give you one other example. Um, when you're a cardiologist, you read ultrasounds, echocardiograms of the heart. And they used to actually come in a basket, like a sheet of paper. Now we call it a basket, but it's, you know, a, a list in the computer. And you read the next one that comes. I read one at nine. I read one at 930. I read one at 10. But what AI can do and what we're working on creating right now is the AI behind the scenes can actually continually reorder those echoes according to which is the next most severe one. So if the 1025 one is worse than the 10 o'clock, it will be pushed to the next in my list. So I'm always reading the next most dangerous thing throughout mm -hmm. the day. Yeah. And then I'm able to call somebody and tell them and get to that patient earlier and ideally save a life or, or at least make their care better. By the end of the day, when you're reading echocardiograms and you get to your 27th one, your human brain is just not as good. But now that's likely a normal ultrasound or something relatively simple. So I even feel better about myself and my job and I don't get burned out because yeah. I did really important things in the morning and I was able to reassure people in the afternoon. Yeah. And so I think, again, when we think about machine learning and where it can be used, I think imaging is a great place to start to bring it from radiology to cardiology. But I want us to do it in a way that we're thinking holistically about the process. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think the idea of, 
AI, machine learning, even chat GPT, very polarizing to a certain extent, right? You, you look online and you see, you know, one article that's touting all of the future capabilities of, of these technologies. And then another article, um, completely slandering AI for inaccuracy and just the inability to replicate what humans can do. But I, I love, and this is go, goes back to your idea of collaborative intelligence because, um, it's fusing, you know, fusing the two together in order to create the best possible care option for patients. That's exactly right. We are never trying to replace a human with AI. And any company who says that they can, they yeah. don't have the right approach in mind. Sure. The right approach is we are trying to ensure that we deliver the level of scientific rigor that's humanly possible, right? or I should say physically possible mm -hmm. to our patients. And a human can't do it alone anymore. Yeah. So we need the computer as our assist. And so it's a partnership. Um, I think this, you know, this is maybe a political statement too in general. I think this polarizing nature of AI is going to solve the world's problems and AI is going to cause the world's problems. That's not helpful in the conversation of healthcare. The conversation of healthcare is we have more illness than we can take care of. And if computing power can help us get to the right patient at the right time, then we as humans need to learn how to use that, harness it, and provide better care to more people. Yep. Now, I'm excited about this last last sort of uh, session that we're going to do. Um, so as an athlete, I've tried a bunch of different consumer wearables for the purposes of performance and optimizing my you know, health, recovery, that sort of thing. And um, in front of me, I have a printed out version of a review um, that was published in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology titled Consumer Wearable Health and Fitness Technology in Cardiovascular Medicine. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, synopsis of this paper, it gives a guidance to physicians how to integrate, um, you know, these consumer wearable devices into clinical care and the data that comes from them. So, you know, at this point, I feel like clinicians are, they're clearly becoming more accepting of these consumer devices, despite potentials for maybe some sort of inaccuracies or false positives. And I know you recently spoke at the Consumer Electronic Society conference about this concept that it's not consumerism, it's patient empowerment. So I'd love if you could maybe give us the main points about consumer wearables that you gave during, during your talk there. Yeah, thank you for asking. I think it's so important that we recognize that patients, individuals, all of us, right, as humans, we deserve to know about our own health. Mm -hmm. And that's step one. We need to go from paternalistic or maternalistic care to partnership. The yep. patient agency is important. And so that's what wearables do. Wearables are a mechanism for you to start caring about your own health, to start understanding how the different things you do, medications you take, habits, good or bad, that you have may be affecting your body. And that's really important because that's step one in engaging people to care about their health. And so that is kind of the basis of wearables and why it's incredibly important that we as clinicians support their use. Mm. Now, having said that, if you ask the average doctor or nurse who's getting these things, I cannot have a stack of faxes come in or screenshots to my phone or uploads to the EHR of every time your wearable, enter name of company, yeah. alerts you that something is happening because that is not productive between you and I. And so the thing that I keep asking for loudly is the companies that are creating the wearables need to help us come up with platforms 
that screen for these results that tell you when it's a result that might need to go to a clinician and when it's a result that doesn't need to. To do that, they need FDA approval and they need rigorous studies that are going to make sure that they are not legally liable for making a clinical decision because they're really just a wearable. And so you can see a lot of the consumer wearables companies now making a careful jump into what they call healthcare. They will tell you that they were patient facing consumer wearables. And now they're making an active effort to see, is their wearable useful in healthcare? And they're having to jump through the same hoops and regulations that we have to for medical grade devices. Is that right or wrong? I think some of these companies just belong in the consumer wearable space. Mm -hmm. They're doing great. People love their stuff. It's creating patient engagement. That's awesome. I think there are others that are founded in such clear kind of algorithmic technical prowess that they can actually create an end-to-end solution. They can become a Livongo, right? They can do that kind of work that there should be some companies that are consumer wearables that start to pull together the needed information for FDA, that start to do the trials and partner with systems. But they have to have a platform. There has to be a way that these hundreds of millions of data points come in, are screened through, and we really safely know these alerts are important and these are less important. And then if we think about the patient, which is the most important part, you use a wearable and you get super excited, right? I'm making an assumption, but like, it tells you things. You're like, this is cool. This is, I once wore a chronic glucose monitor Mm -hmm. and like, I was, every time I ate, you know, I was like, let me eat a bagel. Let me see what happened. Right. Like I got excited about it, but I have patients who, you know, will put on a wearable and will say, oh my God, my heart rate's up. Is this bad? Is something Mm -hmm. happening? And the health related anxiety that already exists since COVID is so high that there are patients for whom a wearable is not a great idea. It's actually just making them more tense. Mm-hmm. And so part of what we need to teach starting pre-med and med school and residency is when do we prescribe a wearable and when do we not? When do we allow it and when do we recommend that this is not ideal? Uh, I think that's actually an equally important part is who should be using it and who shouldn't and how do you use it in a way that's safe for you both kind of mentally and then physically. Um, so I love consumer wearables. I think they are really great for engaging individuals and caring about their health. I think there are some companies that should move into the healthcare space because these kind of devices can help us. Mm-hmm. I think other companies, their job is to just get people to care about their health. And I love what they're doing and they should stay at it and not get distracted from it. Sure. Sure. I'd love to close with, with this final question. Um, there's this idea of the last mile of healthcare delivery, um, you know, and that being the challenges surrounding you know, a patient's interaction with the healthcare system, and especially in historically underserved populations. With regard to digital health and digital healthcare, what barriers are we currently still facing in tackling the last, last mile of digital healthcare delivery? The logistics of healthcare, um, education, all the things we consider rights that people have, whether it's in the United States or globally, are increasingly dependent on their connectivity. And so we collectively need to think about how are people connected? What is their capacity to connect? How often? How long? And how can we adjust our digital health tools to do things like store locally and only forward at night? when it's going to be faster and use less bandwidth, right? How are we going to do things that are going to enable people to have just closed loops in their own home 
where if this happens, then do this, and it doesn't need to be sent somewhere. And so I think connectivity and thinking about the data, how we're structuring it, how we're packaging it, how we're asking it to be delivered and go back and forth is really important. And that's the companies, the entrepreneurs, the large companies who are doing this work. It's partly their job and it's partly our job to continue to ask for that. Um, and then, of course, it's also our job to, you know, make sure that areas are covered better. There's more broadband, right? Um, even as we create technologies, we can create technologies where we actually put a chip in that connects to a network. And it's built into the cost of that device. So now this is, you're just taking the entire patient out of that system and you're saying, look, this device will work no matter where you are. Yeah. Those are the kind of advances we saw at the Consumer Electronics Show. Those are the kind of things that other industries are using that we need to use for remote monitoring in healthcare, remote connectivity in healthcare. Remote connectivity exists in almost every other discipline or profession too, especially in the tech world. And so we just need to learn from them and learn how to do it. I want to end by something I've been thinking about recently, and I may be saying it for the first time here, which is, I know we talk about the last mile problem. And if you go back to thinking about what you said, and I agree, the best care is not necessarily provided in the hospital. The emergent care, the needed care is provided in the hospital. But the best care is actually provided in the home because we can be holistic. We can take in all the factors that are important. And we can give the patient agency, which is maybe the most important thing about outcomes as patient agency. So I think we need to start thinking about it as the first mile. Healthcare starts in the home. It starts with the patient. It starts with their numbers and their baseline and what they need to accomplish in their daily life, what they're able to do, their social determinants. And so it's really how do we enable that first mile of healthcare? that we need to start thinking about. And if we change the way we think about healthcare, then we'll actually create the solutions in the right way to be effective. Um, and so I would just humbly submit that I think instead of last mile, it's time for us to think about it as the first mile. I love it. Dr. Bott, thank you so much for such a wonderful and energizing conversation. Um, um, I know our listeners are going to love this and, you know, for, for so many reasons. And um, it's, you know, it's really optimistic and it's really exciting for me to hear someone of your stature and, you know, being the chief innovation officer of the American Car uh, College of Cardiology, talking about, you know, a future that is AI enabled, but doctors and patients are still at the center of it. Well, thank you so much for having me. And uh, I'm really excited to, to see where you and your generation take us next. Definitely. Yeah. Um, if you could please share, you know, some socials where people can follow you, your work, how they can support, um, you know, everything that you, you're doing. Yeah, I'm um, easy to find on uh, LinkedIn. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm Glad MD. Um, I'm also um, on Twitter, although I use X a little bit less than I used to. Um, and people should feel free to email me. I'm abot at acc.org and always happy to hear from you.